You're listening to the Hillspring Church audio podcast. Hillspring exists so that all people can find and embrace a life of faith through Christ. For more information or to get involved, visit us on the web at hillspringchurch.org. Well, I'm going to give you a peek into my mind this morning. And I'm going to warn you that I'm going to give you a peek into my mind this morning. And I hope that uh, this isn't your last week with us here at Hillspring. But I'm going to confess to you some dysfunction in my life. And what I'm going to tell you about is it's something that I, I know that I don't want to do. And yet the very thing that I don't want to do, I find myself doing over and over again. And it drives me crazy, and it probably drives my family even more crazy. Now, I'm not sure if I've told you this before, but I can have a tendency to obsess over things. And you might be like, well, what do you mean, obsess over things? Well, I'll give you an example from this past week. And this is like, this is something that could happen on any given week. But this past week, what I obsessed over was chisels. You can laugh at me, it's okay. Yeah, I've come to grips with it, kind of, okay? Chisels, right? Chisels that you, you, you use to chip out wood when you're doing some woodworking. And if you don't know, I, I'm, I'm someone who's interested in woodworking. I'm actually interested in a lot of things, and that's a whole, that's part of the problem. But one of the things I'm interested in is woodworking. And so this week, as part of a Christmas gift, I started looking for some chisels. And yes, I already have some chisels, but I'm looking for some more special chisels now, all right? Because I want to create a certain type of wood joinery called dovetails. Anyone familiar with dovetail joinery? Okay, at the very least, you were probably taught if you're looking for good quality cabinets, you want dovetail joinery on your drawers, right? And so you, you, you chisel out a, a dovetail pattern on one piece of wood and it interlocks with the other piece of wood and it makes for a very strong and beautiful joint. And so this is, I'm telling you this because this is how this obsessive nature that I have begins. All right, And for most people, this would be a very simple process. You'd be like, okay, I need to get some chisels. So I go to the store. Uh, I'll go to like Home Depot, uh, find a pack of husky chisels off the shelf. I'll go home and I'll just start hitting some wood and making things, right? And use them. But for me, the process completely takes over my mind, taking days, sometimes weeks to learn about chisels, to study chisels, and by the end of the process, I can tell you all of the chisels that are on the market, why softer steel makes chisels easier to sharpen, but they don't hold their edge as well, and why harder steel holds their edge better, but the steel is more brittle. Have I bored you yet? Okay. I can tell you the difference between socket chisels and tang chisels and some companies that make a combination of the both and with more modern technology, which ones are made in the U.S., which ones are made in China, which ones are made in Japan, which ones are made in the Czech Republic, which ones are made in England and Germany. I can name the brands that are from each of the company, countries. Are you understanding now the problem a little bit here? And why, for the purpose that I'm looking to use these chisels, that they need to be ground just right so what is called the lands on the chisels are super fine so that they don't bruise the cheeks of your tenants. Okay? Even worse, after I study this, I end up with a number of sets of chisels in my home. Amazon doesn't help, or companies with good return policies. 
And most of them go back to the store because I find a flaw in them, such as poor manufacturing, or I don't like the way that they feel in my hands. And this is chisels this past week. And so you say, okay, so what? You have a strange obsession with chisels. Well, if it were only chisels, but the process can happen in nearly any other area of my life. The purchase of a new pair of boots, I can tell you why full grain leather and a 360 degree Goodyear welt is a good thing to have in a boot, right? And Vibram soles, like it could be a TV where by the end of the process, I have had six or eight TVs delivered to my home and returned And I know enough about TVs that I could probably give up my pastoring career and become an electronics salesman. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm obsessed with having more. It's when I decide to make a purchase, and once I open that door, it's like an unsolved puzzle in my mind that leaves me no peace until I'm satisfied that I've gotten the best product possible within the budget that I have to spend. And it's embarrassing because I know that these things are absolutely meaningless. They're absolutely meaningless, yet once it starts, I can find myself completely distracted. And because I have a job and I have to work during the day, I often become distracted at night when I'm supposed to be spending time with my family, right? I know what I want to do, or I know what I don't want to do, and yet over and over, I find myself right back there again. My mind becomes consumed with insignificant details about meaningless things in life. And yes, there are a lot of ways I can justify it. I could say, well, I want to be a good steward of the resources that God has given me, and so I don't want to waste my money on something that's of poor quality. Or I could say, "I, I just like learning new things. Or I could say, I can't help it because it's how my ADHD brain works. I mean, all of these things could be true, but whatever my reasoning, it is it's dysfunctional, right? And it's not healthy. It, it actually affects my life and it affects the lives of the people around me. Now, you probably don't find yourself going down a rabbit hole about chisels. I hope you don't for your sake, right? And if you come to my house, I won't bore you about chisels unless you ask me some questions about them and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about them. But you may know what it's like to know what you want to do and then not do it. Or or to know something that you really don't want to do and yet you find yourself doing that very thing over and over again. Anyone honest enough to admit that? Okay, thank you. Just make me feel a little bit better. So for you, it may may not be getting caught up in, in obsessing over things, but it may be, you know what, your focus is advancement and so you work too much. And you know that it's what you don't want to do. You have a family. You keep telling yourself that you want to slow down a little bit. You want to put your work down and spend more time with your family, giving them attention. That You still find yourself staying late after work or opening your computer in the evening when you're around your family because you're going back to just that tendency that you have. Even though you know you don't want to do it, you find yourself doing it again. And it affects you and the relationships around you. Maybe you worry about things and you know you shouldn't worry and many of the things that you worry about are beyond your control and you know that worrying does not have any impact on the outcome of your life. But no matter how hard you try, it's who you are and so you find yourself worrying over and over again. Maybe it's nitpicking at family members 
and correcting them and pointing out areas where they need to improve. And you, you know that it's not helpful. You know that it's not good. So you try to stop, but you find yourself not being able to bite your tongue or you're trying to bite your tongue, but you just can't help yourself from nitpicking. And so you feel guilty. And this cycle happens, right? Where you don't want to do it, but you find yourself doing it over and over again. I mean, these are just a few examples, but each one of you likely knows what it's like to know something that you don't want to do and yet find yourself doing the very thing that you don't want to do over and over again. See, it's our human nature, isn't it? But if you're like me, this dysfunction can become so frustrating and discouraging that you find yourself in the same place over and over again that you, you make resolutions, right? I don't make resolutions anymore. You make promises, and yet you, you fail over and over again. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the likelihood that you find yourself here is even greater because you've given your life to God. You've said that you've given your life to God. You know the right thing to do, and you want to follow him, and let your, yet your human nature creeps in over and over again, leaving you feeling like a failure, like, like something is wrong with you, like, like you're trapped in your own humanity, hopeless, because you can't seem to do the good that you know you should do. Well, what if I told you that, there's, that one of the most influential figures of the Christian faith struggled with this very thing? It's true. The, the Apostle Paul was a man who wrote the most books in the Bible, God used him to establish the church in the world and his teachings shaped people's faith throughout the entire world over the course of a couple of millennia. And yet in one of his writings, a letter to the church in Rome during the first century, he has this vulnerable moment where he shares about his personal struggle with sin, with his inability to continue to do that which he knows he should do. And so this morning, I'd like to read it to you. Because as you, if you were here last week, you know that we started this year saying, you know what, it's not going to be helpful for us as people to start the year with a do-better mentality. This do-better mentality is like, you know what, I botched things up last year and so, and I feel guilty about that. So this year I got to go in and I got to, you know, make my relationship with God better by doing better. And all it leads to is more guilt, you know, more shame. And it misunderstands the fact that your relationship with God is not established by doing better. And so we're looking at some truths that will hopefully set us off on the right foot this year with a healthy understanding of who God is. So this morning, I want to read it to you because it's something that each of us can relate to. And I also believe that Paul says something that provides hope for each and every one of us. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 7. If you, have, if you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. We're going to have it up on the screen and you can follow along that way. But I'm going to invite you to stand with me as you're turning there. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to lead us and speak to us this morning. God, each of us is standing here with likely something in our minds or something that comes to mind when we think about falling short or not being able to do the things that we know we should do or doing the things we know we shouldn't do. God, I pray that, that through the, the, the teaching this morning, through this scripture, that we would have a better and a healthier understanding of who you are and the way that you see us, that we might become freed of the guilt of our human nature, we pray in your holy name. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. 
so Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 15, he says, I find this law at work. He says, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So he says, you know what? This is what I've come to know in my own life. Even though I have this desire to do good, I live with a constant pull towards evil. There's a constant pull in my life to do the things that I know I shouldn't do. He says, I'm all too aware of this. I know what I want to do, and yet I'm continually drawn to the things that I don't want to do. And he goes on to describe it more in verse 22, saying, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. And so he's saying, in my heart and in my mind, I love God's law. I'm in agreement that I should live as he's called me to live. I'm in agreement that I should live to give everything up for other people and love people. Whatever it may be that's a part of knowing God. I want to do that in my heart and in my mind. But he goes on to say in verse 23, but I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And so he's saying that while his desire is to follow God's law, to do what God wants him to do, there's something else going on inside him. There's another law or another principle, which is his human nature, his human will that he is all too aware of. On one hand, there's God's will for his life, and and then there's, on the other hand, there's his own will, his human will. There's God's good nature, and then there's his broken nature, and they're all inside of him at the same time. And Paul says that because these two things are going on inside him, there's an all-out war happening in his life. An internal war. His human nature is fighting against God's will for his life to the point that Paul describes himself as feeling like a prisoner in his own human nature. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're a prisoner of your own human nature that even though you know what you want to do, you just can't seem to shake the things that you don't want to do? You feel absolutely trapped. He lives in a constant state of inner conflict. And this conflict, it can rip you apart on the inside. It can frustrate you. It can make you feel like an utter failure and even question your worth. If you're a person of faith, you might start to wonder, like, am I worthy enough for God or have I completely blown it? How in the world could God forgive me for doing this again? You know, how could God take me back again? It's not that I did it not knowing what I should do. I know what I should do. So why would God find me acceptable after yet another failure? It was enough for Paul to say in verse 24, he said, he described it this way. He said, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? His human nature, at times, it kills him. It robs him of life altogether. 
And when he, when he describes himself as a wretched man, he's, he's saying it means that he's trapped in a conflicted life that, that's beyond his power to change. He, he's realizing that he's in a miserable state when he is left to his own nature. If he was left to battle life on his own, his life would be completely hopeless. Because he, he just knows that there's nothing he could do to ever stop being the person that he is. That's a pretty hopeless state, isn't it? And so he says, who will save me from this? Now, to those who don't know Christ, this is the most hopeless place to be because I think every person, whether you're religious or irreligious, we, we live with a sense that, that, that we aren't able to meet God's standard. If you believe that there's a God out there, then you probably believe that he has some type of standard for all of us as the human race. And then if you believe that, then you probably believe that, that well, you know that you're probably falling short of whatever standard that, that is. We continually fall short, and that leaves people feeling trapped by their shortcomings. And perhaps that's you this morning. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, I'm a wretched man. Who will save me the end? This is my miserable life. This is how I'm just going to have to go on, just feeling guilty and ashamed for the rest of my life. In fact, Paul, he wasn't hopeless. You know, he's saying, you know, as I, as I talk about this inner conflict that I have, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm led to say what a wretched place that is, but he's not hopeless, even though he knew what it was to live in conflict, even though he could relate to the feeling of being a prisoner in his own human nature. It actually didn't defeat him. Because as quickly as he asks the question, who will save me from this body that is subject to death? He answers his own question in verse 25 when he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Left to himself, life would be hopeless for Paul. Not only would he be left in a state of conflict, but the guilt of that conflict would absolutely destroy him and if I, don't forget, if I don't remember this last sentence, then it does destroy us, doesn't it? When you forget the end of what Paul is saying. When you're left just thinking that it's completely up to you to overcome your human nature, that is hopeless, right? And the guilt does destroy us. That guilt takes root in our hearts and it actually starts to affect the way that we treat other people. We become bitter people. We become people that, because we're so ashamed of our own flaws, we begin to look at the people around us and we start to point out their flaws, right? And so not only does it destroy us from the inside, it starts to rip our relationships apart because we're trying to do better and we can't. And so we become people that just hurt one another because of the pain that we feel inside. But Paul didn't have a hopeless life. See, the power of sin is that it plays on your conscience, condemning you. It says to you, you know what? You are a failure. Your shortcomings just keep speaking to you, saying, you know what? You've screwed up again. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. You know better, but you've screwed up again. You're not worthy. It shows you how much of a failure you are. Sin mocks you. But thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus. See, Christ defeated sin by forgiving the sins of the world on the cross. 
And so the people who, who, who were angry at God, who were rebellious against God, who nailed him to the cross, and the biggest offense that you could ever do, right? Nail the Son of God to a cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross and he forgave the worst sin, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, they didn't know what they do, but I don't know. I haven't figured that out in my mind. But he sent his son to reveal his love for us all, for the whole world. Not just the people that go to church and uh, we don't dress too formally here, so I can't say dress really nice, but he revealed his love for us all by sending his son to show us that even though we do fall short, that God forgives us and he doesn't hold our sins against us. And so if God himself, who is the standard for life. I mean, the Bible teaches us that, that humanity was created to live in the image of God, which means to, to be like him in character, to be people of completely selfless love. And if God, who is the standard for life, forgives us for falling short of that standard, then sin no longer has any hold on us, right? It doesn't have any authority because even though we fall short, we know through Christ that we are loved and we are forgiven because through Christ's forgiveness, we're free from the prison of our own humanity. I mean, what authority does sin have over us then? It has none, right? It's something that, it's like someone down the street coming to you and saying, you know what? You screwed up against your parents, but your parents have already forgiven you for that. And you can be like, I'm good with my parents. My parents have already forgiven me for that. So take a hike, right? And it's the same thing. Sin gets into your mind and starts saying, you know, you are worthless. We can say, you know what? I screwed up, but I'm already right with God because God himself has forgiven me and he's shown me that through his son. And do you see how that disarms the power of sin in our lives? It has no right to condemn us because it's not the standard for our lives. It only drags us from what is right in order to condemn us. Which is why after all of this uh, discussion, Paul concludes in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, because of what God has done through Christ, because God sent his son to show his love and to forgive the sins of the world, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's saying, because of what Christ has done, God has released us from the prison of sin and condemnation. And when we turn to Christ and when we trust in his love and when we trust and just say, you know what? I can't fix this on my own. All I can do is depend on your love. That's all I can do. I mean, I've tried now for 45 years and I know beyond a shadow of doubt that I cannot fix my own life. I can't rid my life of dysfunction. All I can do is say, God, you said you love me. You sent your son to give up your life for me. All I can do is just depend on your forgiveness. That's all I can do, right? And when we do that, we gain the power to tell that inner voice inside our head. Sorry, kids, but we tell that voice to shut up. It's not okay to tell people to shut up. This is the one exception your parents might be okay with. Because we, I just heard someone sorry folks, sorry parents. Because we know now that even though we wrestle with our human nature, God is not condemning us for it. He forgives us and that's what matters. 
Now, of course, we could be dysfunctional and we could try to manipulate that to just do whatever we want to do, right? But that's not the goal here. We realize that these things destroy us and they hurt us and they affect us and the relationships with people around us. And so we continue to strive to do what God calls us to do because we know that it's a better way to live. But that no longer becomes the standard by which we continually define our worth. And that is completely freeing. And that's the freedom that God wants for every single person in this world. And so even though religion and judgmental people have made you think that God's love is based on your ability to do better, you need to know this morning that that's not true. But the truth is that God loved the world, sent his son to forgive the sins of the world, to free you from the guilt and shame of your failures. And he just calls you to trust in that and live in a relationship of his love. And I think that's a good thing, isn't it? All right, would you stand with me? Whatever conflict is going on inside you this morning, whatever uh, dysfunction has been holding you captive, telling you that you're a failure, that you're unworthy or that you're unlovable, whatever has been telling you that you are beyond repair or if you feel trapped by your sin and your dysfunction and in need of a savior, I want you to know that God loves you this morning. He forgives you. And I want to encourage you just to turn to him into the the arms of our loving father. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your love. God, your love has completely changed my life. But there are times, even still, as someone who's known you for many years, where I forget your mercy. And the voice in my head starts to tell me what I'm worth based on my ability to to do what I know I should do. And I thank you for reminding me this morning that your love is completely unconditional. It's unlike any other love that we've known in this world. And I, and I pray that for every person who may have feeling, been feeling trapped by their own dysfunction, God, that they would turn to you this morning and be set free from that prison in your name. We give our lives to you. And we thank you for your forgiveness. Amen. Let's sing the song together.